Hi friend, if you love the information you hear in the podcast, then you will love the free mini series of videos that I've put together just for you. It's all about the biblical blueprint for health and teaches you exact principles I've taught to thousands of Christian women that result in weight loss, better sleep, increased energy, clearer skin, and sharper brains. You can go to thechristiannutritionist.com slash miniseries to grab this free set of short, powerful teachings that will show you how to create better health God's way. It's at thechristiannutritionist.com slash miniseries. Go check it out now. Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? You know, Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth and that we are made to be salty, to bring a distinct flavor into the world as followers of Christ. But it's hard to be salty spiritually when we're not salty physically, because salt is such a critical part of our physical well-being that not only do we not feel well when we don't get enough salt, but we would die without enough salt in our body. And yet so many people are afraid of salt because we've been told it will make you have high blood pressure and other things. But did you know that our blood is meant to have about the same salt content as the ocean and that you can't get water into your cell without salt? Many people are perpetually dehydrated because they don't have this critical mineral in their body. But we just can't put any old salt into these kingdom bodies. We need super high quality salt. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Our guest is Daryl Bosshart from Redmond's Real Salt, my favorite go-to everyday salt. And he is going to tell us all about salt from the earth. Welcome, Daryl, to the Christian Health Club podcast. Chelsea, thanks so much for having me on your program today. I think salt is a fascinating topic, and you alluded to some of the references in religious texts with salt. You know, our bodies are saline solution in motion. We have salt written about in every religious text. You know, salt of the earth is mentioned a lot. And even the fact that our bodies are about 72% water, and if you look at the earth, it's also covered in about 72% water. And so our bodies and salt and water are all connected, and I hope we can explore some of the beauty of that today. Oh, that's exactly what I would love to do. Let's kind of start with, kind of start with that and go from there. You know, salt, we see salt all throughout the Bible, very important just for trading. And you you just get that sense of how important it is, not only from what Jesus says of how we should be, but also it's just a, something that would have been very important and very revered in history in general. And I don't think enough people realize or know that. Can you speak to that? 
Yes. You know, every civilization that we know of started around access to the salt deposits because you said it was a source of trade. Animals, all animals need salt to live. You know, our cows need salt to live and our bodies need salt to live. And because of that, it was an essential part of the spice trade. And so at one point in world history, salt was actually as valuable as gold because it was necessary for all life. If we didn't have a refrigerator, all of the food that we ate outside of season would have to be preserved in salt, whether it's kimchi and sauerkrauts, fermented veggies, and using meat to preserve salt. That's why salt was so necessary. And there's an old saying that if maybe some of your older listeners have heard, it's an old saying that says, is a man worth his salt? That saying comes because in the times of Rome, the soldiers were paid a salary or a wage in salt. That's why the term salary, saline, and salt are so similar. And if you were getting paid a salary or a wage in salt and you weren't working hard enough, you were lazy, you weren't earning your keep, that saying is a man worth his salt meant that you were getting paid a wage in salt that you weren't worth. So you weren't worth the salt that you were getting paid. So since the dawn of time, every civilization, religious texts talk about salt. It was given in ceremonies. It was used as wedding gifts and, and salt. Although today we hear, oh, you know, salt's bad for us. We should eat less salt. Historically, that wasn't the case. But the nature of salt has actually changed. And so the salt that they're talking about in the Bible or that we hear about our ancestors needing isn't the same salt that you might find if you walk into the grocery store and buy this canister that's been processed, refined, and doesn't resemble this beautiful nature salt that we are blessed with to have on the earth. Mm, well, that's the, that's the truth. It has changed quite a bit. And that's why it's so important to have you here to kind of explain Explain this to us, that you can't just go to the grocery store and pick up any old salt and it do what it needs to do in, in the body. That's so fascinating about the the history of it. And I know that I heard, well, I, you know, I met Wendell from Redmond's at the God's Good Table event this summer at, at Polyface Farm. And so that's how we all got connected. And so that was a, a great connection and introduction. And I remember him speaking about how in the Civil War, one of the things that was so pivotal strategically was that they were aiming for the different salt deposits because they knew that 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 would starve people out if you i guess interfered with their ability to utilize salt then it would starve them out and that was a big strategy in the civil war and i had never heard that in addition to that the revolutionary war every civilization every war that we know of up through and including the civil war all had salt as a key part of that conflict in fact because of that china has the, the emperor of china has controlled access to all the salt deposits in china because without a refrigerator you have to have salt to preserve food and if you're running sweating if you're a, a, a foot-based or any military, you have to keep regenerating or consuming salt to offset the sodium loss that's taking place. You know, if you've ever noticed your tears are salt, your sweat is salt, trust me on this, your urine is salt. And so everything that we do is, as animals and humans, we are losing salt from our bodies. And so if we are drinking all the water in the world, 
our urine, our tears, our sweat is still salt-based. And so we are constantly flushing salt out of our body. And if we're not replenishing that, then a lot of things start to go wrong. Uh, Initially, it's going to be muscle cramps, nauseousness, and eventually we'll have something happen called hyponatremia, like hypothermia is low body temp. Hyponatremia is low sodium, and it's actually deadly. And we'll see this. You know, every few years you'll hear of maybe a football team in Texas or the military and they're running and they're sweating. And then one of these young men or women fall over and they die because of dehydration, even though they're drinking high amounts of water. And it's because when you drink high amounts of water, if it doesn't have salt or electrolytes in it, we are flushing those salts out of our body. And eventually that ends in death called hyponatremia. And this is why, even though you might have heard salt's bad, if we went to the hospital today and one of the first things they're going to do is they're going to start an IV of saline solution, which is salt water. But our bodies are 0.9% saline. The ocean water is about 3%. So the reason that when you go swim in the ocean, it stings your eyes or burns your nose, isn't that the salt in the ocean is bad for us. It's that it's three times saltier than the salt salinity in our bodies. And so that balance is really important that we maintain. And so if we're losing salt through exercise, we're working in the garden, maybe we're playing sports or we're riding our bike or we're a roofer um, or a farmer and we're out there working in the hot sun and we're sweating, we're losing that salt continually. And so we've got to replace that with good, clean salt. And a lot of our foods today, if you're eating processed foods, they have copious amounts of processed salt in these processed foods. And so as you make the switch to your lifestyle and you're eating more from your garden and eating more fresh foods, just like the militaries of years ago, we have to go out of our way to add good, clean salt to our diet or we'll start to get in trouble, which is Again, to your point earlier, why salt has been such a key part of every civilization and why it's so important in the Bible. Okay, can you explain, let's just kind of go into the different sources of salt. Like where does salt actually come from? (laughs) Where do you get it? I love that question. So salt in chemistry is defined differently than when we say salt talking in the kitchen. So salt in chemistry is at an acid and a base that are bound together in an ionic bond. And so you have something like magnesium and sulfur, which will bind together as magnesium sulfate. And that in fact is known as a salt in the chemistry definition. When you and I are talking about salt today, we're primarily talking about sodium and chloride, which are two, an acid and a base that are bound together, which is this salt that gives us life. And it's kind of fun because chlorine, everybody knows, is a very deadly acidic gas. And sodium is a very caustic base. In fact, if we had a block of pure sodium and a drop of water would fall on it, it's going to blow up reactively. But if you bind one sodium and one chloride together, it's this life-giving essential nutrient that we have here on the on the earth with us. And so I think there's some fun, you know, discussions around divine chemistry that allow salt, which are two deadly substances, to join together to give us life. But all salt 
regardless, when, and again, when I say salt, I'm talking about sodium and chloride-based salt today. But all salt comes from a seabed at some point. It might be the current ocean, like the San Francisco Bay, the Gulf of Mexico. It might be a dead sea, like the Dead Sea in Israel, or the Dead Sea in Utah, called the Great Salt Lake. Or it could be an ancient seabed, a seabed that was laid down, you know, eons ago, long ago. But it's going to come from one of those three sources. And so when you went back to the you know times of Christ, or you went back even a few hundred years ago, the salt that was produced was either coming from a current ocean. And back then, our oceans didn't have near the pollution and contaminants they do today. It was coming from a dead sea, like the Dead Sea in Israel, the Great Salt Lake, or it was coming from an ancient seabed, a seabed you know laid down long ago. And so those are the, the three different potential sources of salt. Now, all of those, like the Dead Sea in Israel, has higher levels of magnesium chloride than our bodies are based sodium and chloride. So the Dead Sea isn't a good source of salt for your kitchen table because that salt isn't sodium and chloride, which is what our bodies are based on. So you wouldn't go to the Dead Sea and harvest salt for your kitchen table because that would not be the salt that our bodies bodies are based on. So that's how historically salt was produced. Unfortunately, around the turn of the century, Salt companies realized that seawater not only has sodium and chloride, which is, you know, the primary base of salt, but it also has trace amounts of calcium chloride, potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, these other trace complex chlorides that we didn't know a lot about several hundred years ago. And so salt companies thought, wow, you know, magnesium chloride, that's valuable. Potassium chloride is valuable. So if we could take this seawater and create a process to take the seawater in its holistic and natural state, move it to a pond and settle off the potassium chloride, we could sell that to one company. Then we could take the next pond and pull off the calcium chloride and sell that to another company. So we do this two or three times and we can remove these other complex chlorides and sell them off. And then what we were left with is salt. And so at the time, manufacturers thought this is a great idea. We can, you know, increase our revenue. It's like if you were a a milk farmer and you could take the raw milk from your dairy and you could pull off the cream and you can sell that for ice cream and butter and then you could sell the the remaining, you know, white milk looking product. That's very different from whole milk that we get from from nature, the way the way you know God has always created milk, and the way God created seawater was with this complex chloride. Yet today, most of our salts on the market we have taken off, or we, as in humanity, has taken off the potassium chloride, pulled off the magnesium chloride, pulled off the, the calcium chloride, and so it's not the same product that was created for humans or for animals for that matter. So that's problem one is this demineralizing that many of the salts on the market today go through before it ends up in the grocery store. That's problem one. Problem two, which I think is probably the bigger problem is salt in nature is hygroscopic. Hygroscopic means sucks water out of the air. So if you were to take a salt crystal and you were put it on your kitchen table in a very humid area, it will actually suck water out of the air because that salt's job is to help 
interact with moisture. And so in the body, salt's job is to help regulate the intracellular and the extracellular fluids because of this hygroscopic ability to interact with moisture. However, scientists discovered and humanity has discovered that salt, because it's hygroscopic, if you have salt on your kitchen table and it's like fine granulated salt and it's humid, that salt will suck water out of the air and that salt in your shaker will start to clump. It'll get kind of sticky. And so it doesn't pour out of the shaker very well when it's raining outside because it sucks water out of the air. So a group of scientists got together and said, what type of chemical could we take and coat or paint the outside of this crystal with to stop the salt's ability to interact with moisture? Now, I think they should have said, should we do this? They didn't. They said, can we do it? And yes, you can. And so they found a whole list of chemicals that a salt company can take that they can coat a crystal of salt with to stop that salt's ability to interact with moisture. Things like yellow preciated soda, which is sodium ferrous cyanide. Things like sodium silicoaluminate, which is very similar to the aluminum in an antiperspirant. And so you can take a salt crystal and stop its ability to interact with moisture. And so a campaign, a marketing campaign was designed around this idea. And the marketing campaign was this cute little girl with a yellow umbrella. And it said, when it rains, it pours. And she's walking down the street and the salt is trickling out the back of the shaker. And the idea was that when it's raining outside and it's very humid, that the salt doesn't get sticky or doesn't clump in the shaker. Sounds like a great idea. Other than in order to do that, we have to add a whole list of chemicals to the salt to stop its ability to interact with moisture, which is actually salt's entire job in the body is to interact with moisture. So those are the two things that I think um, are most fascinating is one, most salts today go through this process of demineralization. It'd be like taking an orange and sucking out all the ascorbic acid and the vitamin C and then still selling the orange left over. I mean, nobody would want to buy an orange if it said, hey, this orange, it looks great, but it's free of all citrus and vitamin C properties. No, <laughs> you know, why would, why would we do that? And salt is kind of the same way. Why would you buy a salt that's been stripped of this complex chloride that was created for us and then take that processed salt and then cover it with a whole slew of different potential chemicals to stop its job, which is to help regulate intercellular and extracellular fluids. So that's a really long answer, but hopefully that gives your listeners an appreciation for the differences in salts on the market today. Yes. And it just is such a representation of how so much of God's real food, you know, has been and how man can be so brilliant and yet so stupid <laughs> all at the same time. Why, you know, like you put it so well, like we can, but the question is, should we? And there, I think if we would go back in history, there's a lot of times we could say, no, you shouldn't have. Please don't strip all of our good foods of all of the, the good nutrients. Yeah, that is so interesting. So yeah, and so that's what we're finding on the grocery store shelves, just this processed salt that doesn't give us this full complement, the spectrum of nutrients the way God provided it. 
let me ask you this, because I think with that particular brand you're talking about, uh, one of the higher selling points of this salt that we're supposed to get from the grocery store is like, oh, it's got, we need iodine and we've got to get this, you know, iodine enriched salt from the store and it's really important. And what are your thoughts on that? I, I love that question. And I think we'll follow that up with how do I find a good salt? Because there's a lot of great salts out there and there's only three questions that your listeners will have to ask to find a good, clean salt to add to their kitchen table. But before we do that, I would love to address iodine because iodine is one of those essential nutrients that absolutely every one of us need. And in fact, today, based on diet and because of some other halogen contaminations, most of the audience today probably is low in iodine. And when iodine levels are low, a lot of stuff starts to go wrong, starting out with tumors and cancer um, and increased infertility rates. And there are a slew of, of problems with iodine, with low iodine levels. But the question is, how did iodine ever get linked to salt? Because Historically, if we went back, you know, a thousand years ago, we would have never associated iodine and salt in the same discussion. And yet today, no discussion on salt would be complete without a discussion on iodine. And um, we have a little history lesson here, but the whole reason that we associate iodine and salt together is actually because of World War One. In World War One, the draft was instituted or was created. And when they started the draft, they noticed that a lot of men in the Midwest had a high level as a percentage of goiter problems. And goiter is the result of an iodine deficiency that causes a swelling of the thyroid. And if you have this massive goiter or swollen thyroid gland because of your lack of iodine, you can't be drafted into the military. And so the, um, the FDA and the feds and the department of defense got together and said, Hey, we have got to do something about this because we can't draft men into the military that have a goiter problem. And a high level of the Midwest has a goiter problem. And you think about the Midwest in that early 1900 range, 1919, 1918 in that range, the Midwest was eating higher amounts of processed foods and they're further away from the ocean. And so they're not getting some of these natural food sources that are naturally higher in iodine, like fish, fresh fish, kelp, seaweed, and there's other great sources of iodine as well. And so the military got together and said, how do we solve this problem? I would hope that somebody said, well, let's have a campaign and educate all of the people in the U.S. on the importance of finding foods that are rich in iodine and adding them to their diet, like seaweed or, or kelp or dulse or certain fish, all rich in iodine. What they said was, is, well, let's try to add it to something that we can force the population to consume higher amounts of it. You think of some municipalities, and this is a completely different discussion, but some municipalities will add fluoride to a water supply to force consumption of iodine, or sorry, of fluoride. With iodine, it's, a, it's purple, kind of a purplish red color. It's indigo, which is part of the name iodine. But if you add that to your water, it tastes awful and gives your water a rusty color, which isn't, it is not palatable. It's it certainly, people would drink less water if it all tasted like iodine. And so they said, well, that's not going to work. 
we can't add iodine to the water supply. Can we add it to flour? Because we know people are eating a lot of, of processed flour. Could we put iodine in the flour and force people to eat iodine that way? And it didn't work that way either. You know, can you imagine, you know, taking a couple of drops of iodine and putting it in your bread? It doesn't taste very good and doesn't work. And so what they came up with was salt because everybody at the time knew that salt was essential to live. And so if they could find a source of iodine that they could add to salt and disguise it, then people would start eating more levels of iodine because they have to eat salt to live. And when they came up with this idea, they created a new law that said, if any salt manufacturer does not start to add iodine to their salt at a level of 45% iodine, recommended daily allowance per quarter teaspoon, the manufacturer has to put a warning that says, warning, this salt does not supply iodide a necessary nutrient. And so the whole reason you see that on salt today is because of this law that was enacted post-World War One, when the U.S. realized that people needed to eat more iodine than they were currently getting. And so, unfortunately, iodine that's added to iodized salt, it's called potassium iodide, it's less than 10% bioavailable. Now, if your only choice is iodized salt to get any level of iodine, that's probably better than nothing because it is such an important part of our nutrients that we need. However, it's not a great source. And all of us today have a lot better sources of iodine than processed iodized salt. And so if, if anybody's low in iodine, which most people are, they would either want to go out of their way to find foods that are rich in iodine and, or find a good iodine supplement that you can add to, to help replace those lower levels of iodine. So iodine is essential. Salt is a really terrible way to get it if you have any other choice. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. That's interesting history there. Um, well, let's talk about what we should be looking for in a salt and what we should be avoiding when we're looking at a salt. And, and just some of these, these differences, you know, we hear a lot about, um, pink salts and Celtic salts and, you know, just like there's all kinds of recommendations and I don't, it's kind of hard to navigate. Like, well, what's what and what's the best for me and what do I look for? So if you could elucidate that, that would be fantastic. I, I love that question. And there's only really three questions you need to remember. And I would suggest that these three questions, they work great for salt, but they also work pretty universally for other great food. And either uh, and even other great products that we might want might want to add to our life, and so the first one is who is producing it. In salt, that's really important because if you went to the grocery store today and you picked up a, a label and it says salt on it, to be able to know who actually is producing that can get pretty hard because a lot of salt is commingled. It's uh, hit at a co-packer. And so to actually know who's producing the salt that's in your shaker is a hard thing to find out sometimes. But I think that's the most important question because if we know who's producing the salt, then we can ask the second question is what's the source? You know, in salt, it can come from a current ocean like the San Francisco Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, Sea of Japan. And if I were getting salt, I would not want to get salt from the Gulf of Mexico during the BP oil spill 
or I would not want to get it from the Mediterranean Sea when the cruise ship goes down and dumps all that stuff into the Mediterranean. And I wouldn't want to get my salt from Japan when there's the nuclear meltdown that created all of that toxicity in the ocean waters of Japan. And so knowing the source becomes really important when it comes to our food. And then if you, if you know the source or you know who's producing it and you know the source, then you can find out the third question is, what are they doing to it? Are they taking anything out like we discussed before through this series of evaporation ponds? Are they putting anything into it like some of the chemicals that we talked about earlier? And I think if you can find those three questions, you know, who's producing it, what's the source and what are they doing to it? you'd end up with a great quality salt and a great quality, whatever else you might be eating. You know, if you're going down to the farmer's market and you, and you decide to buy a bag of carrots, you know, where's that coming from? You know, what's, what are they using on the field that the carrots were grown from? Are they sucking out any beta carotene before, you know, they're selling you the the leftover, you know, orange stick that we, we hope is a carrot (laughs) that was created, you know, for humanity. And I think if we can ask those three questions, we'll get a lot better product. And you might find that you end up with Redmond, which is our, our brand is from an ancient seabed in Utah. We call it real salt as opposed to you know fake salt or processed salt. Or you might find a great brand from South America, from the Bolivia pink salt area. It might come from a great place in the Mediterranean off the coast of Brittany, France. I mean, there's a lot of good salts out there. And obviously I'm a little biased and I love Redmond and I love real salt. But I also think there's a lot of other good products. And if we answer those three questions, we'll be able to find one that's right for us and our family. You know, the, uh, I lost my train of thought, but yeah, those three questions will, will lead us to a good, clean product, whether it's our brand or one of the other great brands across the world. Well, let's talk about Redmond's and give us just, I'd love some insight about the mine and where it is and, and speaking of processing, like how you go about it and just a little history there. And, and we kind of jumped in, in the podcast and I really didn't give you an opportunity to introduce yourself or say kind of what your role with Redmond's is in your history. So why don't you do all of that for us now? Yeah. So Redmond, the, the brand Redmond and the brand Real Salt comes from this ancient seabed that was uh, serendipitously underneath my grandfather's farm. And in the late 1950s or mid 1950s, there was a drought in Utah that was was pretty hard. And just north and just south of my grandfather's farm, there was an outcropping of salt that the Native Americans had actually harvested long before, you know, the settlers had come through the valley. That all moved on, but there were these little outcroppings of salt. And so in in World War II, my grandfather was actually a riveter for McDonnell Douglas in California and then became a business manager there. And his brother was a, a miner at this big copper mine in Utah called Kennecott. So after the war, the two decided they wanted to raise their families near each other. So they went back to their their dad and grandpa's farm and started farming here in central Utah. And in the 1950s, that drought that I was mentioning earlier was uh, pretty devastating to a lot of the farms. And so they were trying to find something to do to, you know, feed the kids and, and stay afloat. And so with my grandpa's business experience and my grandpa's brother's mining experience, they decided to go into the salt business. 
And they felt that these minerals that were underneath their farm were a stewardship. They had this divine calling that they felt that it was their you know, stewardship to provide these minerals to local farmers for their livestock, as well as to um, use it for uh, for the benefit of humanity. And so that's kind of how the company got started. It's a lot bigger than that now. It's not just my family that's involved, but that's kind of the history of the the Redmond and the salt deposit. And the town is named Redmond because there's three red mounds that are behind the town. <laughs> and these red mounds are part of this outcropping or or uplift of this this ancient the seabed. Of course, we don't know how long ago the seabed was was formed. We just know that it was formed long before you know we were we were there. That is so neat. Oh, I love hearing that. And that's one of the you know one reason I love Redmond's and real salt. I just I love that it's well relatively close. I mean, it's you know right here in, in America, and I love that. You know, I was thinking when you were talking about the different salts of the world and. And I'm always thinking about, you know, local, eating local and such. And I guess this is, that would be pretty, you know, there's only so many choices when it comes to salts and such. But anyway, how each one would probably have these different salts of the world would have a little bit of a different, maybe mineral profile and kind of offer what is most needed in the, in the place that it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and we kind of feel that way as well. And, and we love the idea of, of people being in tune with what their bodies need and finding one that, that works well for them. You know, one of the questions we get is, well, where did all this salt come from? And of course we weren't alive back then to, you know, to know exactly what happened, but you know, it does talk in the Bible about the uh, continents dividing and, you know, it seems like when geologists talk about this, this, this splitting apart or pulling apart, the Arctic Ocean flooded down through the north, through what's now Canada, into past Montana and down and left this massive body of salt water that was, you know, prehistorically or historically laid down long before we were here. And some people say, oh, salt in Utah, they think of the Great Salt Lake and they think, well, maybe this Redmond salt is part of that. But it's not that the Great Salt Lake salt is remnants of a, a lake called Lake Bonneville. And the the salt deposit that real salt comes from is from a, an earlier period that geologists call the Sundance Sea period. And this Sundance Sea was this massive inland sea that flooded down from the north and left this massive body of salt water. Geologists place in the Jurassic era, you know, whatever that means to to different people. Hmm. Okay. I just think that is so interesting. So you, have you been a part of the family business from the get-go? Sort of. When I was young, I grew up, you know, I was, you know, barely knee high to a grasshopper and and I would go down and and bag salt or sweep the warehouse floor. So my earliest memories are working at the salt company. My dad always told me that he would never hire me unless I worked for somebody else for a few years. And so even though I loved, you know, I, I, I've got a um, pretty big family. I'm one of uh, one of eight children. And, you know, I w- originally was the only one that was interested in working in the salt business. Now I've got a, a sister who's, you know, comes, who has come back and works for the business as well. But as a kid, I always just loved working in the salt business. Every Saturday I would, you know, go out and sweep the floor in the warehouse after school. I would ride my bike down and my dad would pay me five cents to put a sticker on, on the labels or the label sticker on the jars. 
So after college, I went and worked for the state of Utah for a couple of years. And then I was able to come back to the come back to the business in 2005. So it's like I said before, it's not just my family that's involved. We actually uh, sold the business in uh, 2000. A lot of us are still involved. You know, it takes a different personality and a mindset to grow a business up to, say, 50 employees as it does to 500. And because of my my grandfather and his brother and, and my my parents idea or belief that these these minerals were a stewardship they wanted to increase to bless as many lives as possible, both through employment and wages and great access to great products. In the late 90s, early 2000s, they felt like, you know what, we have done the best we can and it's probably time to to keep growing and to maybe to, to pass on that stewardship. And so our current CEO is a man by the name of Rhett Roberts who acquired the company, grew up down the street from me, and he acquired the company from us back in the early 2000s. But it, it's been a fun company to be a part of over the years. Oh, that's that's so neat. So this might sound like a stupid question, but is there, I mean, could you run out of salt? I mean, what is it? I mean, how big? And I mean, do you, you know, you you keep mining it? How, how does that work? So that's a really interesting question. The salt that we are mining is technically a finite resource in that it doesn't regenerate because this seabed was you know, back in early, early biblical time frame. And so it doesn't, it's not regenerating. However, the deposit is about a quarter mile wide, three miles long and about 5,000 feet deep. And since the 1950s, we've gone down around 700 feet into the deposit, but only taking about 40% or less of the material. So geologists kind of guess that we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 plus years give or take, of mining left. And so, yes, feel free to salt your food liberally with good, clean <laughs> Redmond salt because it's not going away anytime soon. Oh, well, that's good to know. That's great. Oh, I ha- this just popped in my mind. I have to tell you, this is so funny. I went to a a wedding this last weekend and everybody who's listening to the podcast will know whose wedding this is, my good friend, and she's she's often on the podcast. But I, I was sitting at a, a table, we were all sitting at the table for dinner, and she had sat me with some of her other colleagues that she works with, and so, works with. so we're all very health-minded. And sure enough, one of the ladies pulled out her little like miniature Redmond salt shaker. It was just like a teeny, almost like a sample size that she said, oh, I never leave my house without this. And it was... I was like, okay, you are my people right here at this table. It was so funny. And she's like, anybody need to eat some real salt? And so it was so great. <laughs> so good. Let's talk about, okay, well, so with Redmond's, is, do you look at new different mineral profiles for different salt? Yeah. So in the deposit, we have different mineral levels. It's all the same deposit, but there's some areas that have a little higher mineral content, some that are a, a little lower. And in food salt, food salt is defined as at least 97% sodium and chloride with only 3% other minerals. They do this partially because if we go back to our previous discussion about additives, they don't want a salt company adding more than 2 or 3% other stuff and still selling it as salt. So in our deposit, we look for spots of the deposit that are right around 98% sodium and chloride that have this 2% of other trace minerals, the potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, calcium chloride, selenium, phosphorus, iodine. 
which gives us that rosy pink color. Other spots of the mine that we sell for keeping roads safe as a de-icing material or even for agricultural use has a little higher level of those minerals. So even though the whole deposit is the same, there are areas that we target a little differently within the deposit. Now, within, within our product family, salt acts and tastes differently on the tongue depending on the size of the crystal. And so there's four primary sizes of salt that we would use in, in a culinary setting. So the first one is called coarse. Coarse salt is about the, the size or diameter of a peppercorn. And you would use that either for a pretty display underneath maybe some fish or underneath a steak for, for presentation. Or you could use that larger size in a spice mill or a grinder. When you grind pepper, it's actually a little fresher because you're opening that that dried out hardened seed. When you grind salt, there's no benefit like there is in pepper. Other than a lot of grinders today have a dial that you can select the size of salt crystal you might want. Coming down in size, the next size of crystal is called kosher. Now, kosher is an interesting discussion when we're having a religious uh, discussion as well because of the context of kosher in the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. And salt, as you recall, is hygroscopic, meaning it sucks water and sucks moisture out of the air. In Judaism, in the Old Testament, blood is not something that is clean. It is, in fact, unclean. And so in, in a Jewish setting, a Jewish person would have to, if they wanted to eat a piece of meat or a steak, they would have to have that meat prepared in a way that would be known as kosher. One of those conditions is there's no blood in the steak because according to the Jewish law of health, blood is not kosher or not clean. And so to get blood out of a steak, if you use a koshering sized crystal, which is about the size of crystal you might see on a margarita rimmer or on a pretzel or edamame, that size of crystal is known as koshering salt because it will suck the blood out of meat without making the meat overly salty. And after it's sucked the blood out, you can scrape it off and it doesn't stay in the meat like a really fine salt crystal would. So one of the confusions when we're talking about salt in a religious text or religious context is what does kosher mean? Because maybe they've heard that, oh, you know, there's, you might buy a box of cereal or a, a bag of salt and there's a little symbol on the back that says OU or it might be star K or it might say kosher. So in foods, particularly when we're talking about salt, there's two meanings of the word kosher. The first is the size of salt crystal, and the kosher size crystal is that size that you would see on a pretzel or on edamame at a Japanese restaurant. And in, in Judaism, a, a rabbi can come to a facility as like a health inspector. They don't offer a sacrament. They don't do any type of religious rite. They just come in to make sure that people are washing their hands and any food there is prepared in a way that would meet the law of health as stated in the Torah. And so salt can be kosher certified, meaning a, a rabbi can come can stamp the process to say it's it's being done correctly or it's clean. And in salt, 
the size of crystal is also known as kosher. So you have koshered salt that may not be certified, or you can have a fine salt that's not kosher sized that can also be certified clean according to the Jewish law of health. Kind of a confusing discussion, but that's what kosher and kosher mean in terms of salt. The next size down is fine. This is the size that you would see like granulated sugar. It's about the size you would see on every kitchen table. And then the fourth size is powder salt. You don't typically see a lot of that in stores, but powder salt would be used similar to confectioner sugar in that it's a stronger flavor and because of the, the surface area that's exposed to the tongue. For instance, if you were to take a, a hard tack candy and you were to suck it, all you're touching, your tongue only touches the outside edges of that cube. If you pulverize the cube into powder and, and put it all in your mouth, your tongue is immediately going to taste all of that, all of those particles versus just the outside edge. So if you're doing something like potato chips or popcorn, um, that powder salt will not only stick to the product better, it will also give you a stronger flavor versus a kosher or coarse crystal, which is going to dissolve slower on the tongue. So those are kind of the four main sizes. And then, of course, salt is really fun because we can add it to garlic. Then we have garlic salt or all kinds of different seasonings. So the world really opens up with flavors when it comes to salt. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, thank you for that. That's I didn't even think about the different sizes and stuff and, and what what kind of different experience that would that would offer or what that means. But thank you for clearing that up, especially that's interesting to this audience, um, I'm sure, with the kosher. Let me ask you this, because every once in a while, I will see, you know, people will ask me or people will post things about like heavy metals and microplastics and salts. And I recently had somebody in one of my groups share an article that, you know, gave like a report card of all these different salts and, you know, ones that are high in heavy metals. And, you know, they, you know, Redmond's, Redmond's gets its fingers pointed at just as um, other ones do. And so I think those can be very misleading, but I would like you as an expert to kind of help Answer what that means when we see something like that and break that down for us. The really important question when it comes to any food particularly, and none of us want to eat food or any product that is potentially or is actually contaminated. I'm going to break the question into two parts. So the first is microbeads and plastics. So unfortunately, you know, we humans haven't been the best stewards of the planet that we live on. And so if we went out to the ocean today and looked at that ocean water versus the ocean off the, you know, the Mediterranean in the time of Christ, that's going to look a lot different because of, of oil and pollution and toxic rain and, and sewer sludge. And I mean, we just haven't been great stewards. And for a while, there were a lot of products, uh, soaps particularly, and lotions and creams that would have a lot of micro beads. So you'd buy a, a soap or a lotion would have all these little purple beads in it that would look really pretty, not thinking that those beads are going to end up in the ocean. Or we have other just lots of pollution in our oceans today. And so there are a lot of studies that show that, you know, fish and seaweed today or, or, or fish, when they, when they catch them and open them up, there's actually chunks of plastic in the fish. And so 
you know, one of the things that is nice about an ancient prehistoric seabed versus a current ocean is that this seabed that was laid down, you know, probably somewhere in the Genesis time frame doesn't have the same challenges that our oceans today do. So that's that's the first thing. Now, you know, every product today, if you buy a gallon of milk and it's got a plastic lid on it and you twist the lid open, there is plastic on plastic contact on that lid on your gallon of milk, you know, one of those pieces could break off. And, but that's very different from the, the massive amounts of microbeads and plastics that we're talking about in ocean water. The second one is when it comes to, to heavy metals. Now, all of us know that we want to avoid lead and we want to avoid mercury and we don't want to have lead-based paint in our homes. Um, this is all a no-brainer. However, you know, we do live on this planet that God created for us. And this planet is the third most abundant element is aluminum. Now, the aluminum that's the third most abundant element isn't the same as aluminum foil or processed aluminum bricks that might be in, used in cooking. The aluminum that occurs as the third most abundant element is actually attached to a silica, and it's an aluminum silicate, which acts very differently than aluminum by itself. Similar to chlorine and sodium that we talked about earlier. Chlorine is deadly gas. Sodium is extremely explosive. You put them together, and it's what keeps us alive. Now, every element isn't, isn't equal. That's the first thing to keep in mind. And the second thing is because we live on this planet Earth, and because things like lead and other heavy metals are found in the earth, unless we left the earth and went to heaven or somewhere else, we're going to have trace amounts of earth in everything that comes from the earth. So if you eat kale chips, if you go eat sunflower seeds, all of these are going to have trace amounts of heavy metals, even though it was the way they were created divinely since the dawn of time. And so I think one of the things that was interesting about the, the recent article you mentioned is the, the salts that they recommended were both highly processed, refined, pharmaceutical grade products. And I just tend to believe that nature has it right when it comes to products. And the way that, you know, God created an orange, or if you don't like that discussion where, you know, how nature created an orange, how that orange was created I don't think man can improve upon it. And even though there's trace amounts of heavy metals in the orange grown in an organic grove that's never been next to a power plant or an oil refinery, it's going to have some of these trace amounts of the earth because it's from the earth. And so I think sometimes people get wrapped a little bit around the axle because it's a catchy headline or it's clickbait. When if we look at our bodies that were created, we have an, ab an amazing ability to process natural foods and natural products. And so that's my thoughts on that is, yes, we should go out of our way to avoid toxicity and microbeads and plastics and heavy metals and toxins and pollutants. But the natural amount of elements that are found in kale, because that's the way God created it, I don't personally, I don't get too concerned about that. And the natural amount that's ultra trace in salt, because that's the way God created it. I think he knew what he was doing and our bodies can process that, which is very different from a product coming from Roundup Ready corn that's been GMO modified that now does have toxins added to it. Those, to me, those are two very dis different discussions. And so that's how I can rest assured, you know, eating good, clean, natural salt, good, clean, natural kale, good, clean, natural um, salmon 
that is the way God created it. Different discussion if it's, you know, pollution based, but that's how I feel about that. Okay. That makes sense. Like there's naturally occurring minerals and metals in the earth. I mean, that's just part of it. And that is different than using aluminum deodorant every day or something like that. Not the same exposure. Not the same exposure and it not in the same form. You know, right. very different, you know, the, the aluminum silicate that's going to be, you know, found in your backyard because, you know, it's or on the beach that's connected to sand, you know, is very different from this highly processed aluminum. You know, aluminum is kind of fascinating because some of you listeners may know that the top of the, the Washington Monument, it's actually capped in aluminum. And the reason for that is at the time, aluminum was more expensive than gold, platinum, titanium. It was the most expensive metal. And so to kind of show off, the U.S. used aluminum to cap the top of the Washington Monument. Years later, we discovered electrolysis, and we were actually able to then take all this abundant aluminum and split it apart through the process of electrolysis and actually manufacture aluminum, where before it didn't exist in it doesn't exist in the metallic metal form, which is why it was so expensive. And yet today, you know, we use it with this abundant throwaway mentality. But aluminum in nature is not this processed block aluminum. And, you know, sodium and chloride is nothing like chlorine gas that's used in a gas chamber or used to purify water. It's extremely, I mean, completely different. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that's what people have to keep in mind. It's not when somebody hears aluminum or lead, we're thinking like the lead paint or like sheets of aluminum foil or the aluminum in our um, deodorant and that, you know, those kinds of things. So different Very compounds different from our bodies and the way, you know, God intended us to to be exposed to the elements that he created on the earth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you for clearing that up because I know I would get that question from somebody. So that will be, that's good just to include that here. What, how much salt do you think a person needs a day? Or do you, you know, have any research background that would indicate what a good amount of salt is for a person? So the short answer is more than the daily recommended allowance. In fact, they did a study a few years ago from the American Journal of Medicine, and I can send you a link to it, that actually shows that the the person who's consuming less than 2,300 milligrams per day actually has a higher rate of cardiovascular disease mortality than those who are consuming higher amounts of salt. And the difference in mortality rates have to do with the salt as well meaning sodium chloride, as well as the potassium, the magnesium, and calcium that offset that sodium. And so a lot of your research on salt and consumption also is really important to link to water and consumption because of the way that the water and the salt work together as saline to balance our bodies. And so there's a couple of great books that answer this question. I'm not a doctor, and so I don't want to give any medical advice. However, there's a great book called Salt Your Way to Health, written by a Dr. David Brownstein out of the Midwest. And there's another one called The Salt Fix by Dr. James D. Nicolantonio. Both of those guys reference a previous author, or, or at least discuss a previous author, whose name was Dr. Batman Gelly. And all three of these individuals suggest that we should be drinking 
probably at a minimum about half of our body weight in ounces of, of just good clean water, not coffee, not tea, not soda, just good clean water that, you know, nature created for us. And so if you're drinking half your body weight in ounces, if I am 150 pounds, I should be drinking around, you know, 75 ounces of water. And then for each quart of water that I'm drinking throughout the day, I ought to be adding probably somewhere between an eighth and a quarter teaspoon of good, clean, natural salt to offset the flushing of minerals that's taking place. And so I think that's a good place to start. Now, if I am an endurance athlete or I'm a roofer or I'm a road contractor in Las Vegas and I'm out sweating hard all day and my water consumption is much higher, then my salt consumption should should rise to, to offset that. And so I think most people, if they switch to a natural diet, they can just start adding salt to their food liberally because salt aids in digestion. And then they can also add a little bit of water to their, a little bit of salt to their water through something like the product Relight, which is re-electrolyte that we offer here at Redmond, or just taking a pinch of, of salt and adding it to your glass of water. You know, one of the, the best hydrating sports drinks, um, if you want to save some money or maybe you've got some kids and you're going to go play church ball or something, is to take a quart of good clean water, add a quarter teaspoon of salt, a squeeze of lemon, maybe some honey or, or some fig syrup to add a little sweetness to it. And you'll be the, the hit of the block and you're going to have a product that's way better than any of those commercial sports drinks out there with all the food colorings and the flavors and the sugars. And you can make it for pennies, quart of good, clean water, quarter teaspoon of natural, uh, real salt, squeeze a lemon, and you're off to the races. And if that's a little, you know, not really convenient because you want to be on the go, then the little stick packs of Redmond Relight that have the good clean salt, but then also have some added potassium, magnesium, and calcium to work with the sodium as a complex electrolyte. Oh, that's fantastic. And you know what I recently have been doing? I've been drinking Soleil water that I've made with my Redmond salt, and that's been working out well. So just making that like a little water and mine's a little pink because of the Redmond's, which is fun. And then just adding like a teaspoon up to a tablespoon, kind of depending on how the day's going to my big Stanley cup of water. And that has worked really well. You know, I love also. that. What's kind of fun, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the history and science of salt. So ocean water is 3%, 2 to 3% salt in salt water or in seawater. And max salinity is about 26%. And so when you put the salt crystal in your uh, jar to make Soleil water, when you put the, the salt crystal in and then you put the water on top, when you put the water in, the water is at 0% salt. After a period of time, that water will hit Soleil, which is max salinity, which is 26%. So a quarter or a, a teaspoon of Soleil water is about a quarter teaspoon of salt. And so whether you add a, a teaspoon of Soleil or a quarter teaspoon of salt, you're looking about that same ratio. Oh, nice. I hadn't quite broken it down like that, um, but that's good to know. That's great. You mentioned the Relight, which is a great electrolyte um, source, but Redmond makes other products. I heard Wendell, when he was talking about when he was at the God's Good Table event, talking about some of the the clays that you offer. Could you just tell us quickly about, about that and, and how those are used? 
So as passionate as I am about salt, I think clay is even cooler. You know, just like salt's written about in the Bible, so is clay. There's a pretty cool story about a blind man and uh, some clay and some spit is used. I'm sure you're thinking of the same story and they Mm -hmm. put it on somebody's eyes. And I'm not downplaying the miraculous healing ability of the, the story entails. However, I do think it's interesting that clay, just as salt has been important for every civilization since the dawn of time, and it's been written about in every religious text, so has clay been for healing properties. And so every culture has used clay for healing since the dawn of time. And this type of clay has been historically used for, you know, bee stings, spider bites, as a poultice. But today we actually sell it for a face mask. You know, every diva since Cleopatra has put clay on her face and clay draws and pulls impurities. So it lifts out the toxins and the blackheads and the things in the skin. And then clay is also a great base product. And so we use clay in toothpaste. We use it in facials. Um, and then historically, clay has some pretty pretty amazing results. Even in the animal husbandry, um, we actually sell it as a feed additive for farmers as a toxin binder because clay, when added to feed, reduces aflatoxin. It actually reduces heavy metal toxicity in pigs and in fish and in birds. We don't sell it as a supplement for, for human use because of the challenges of, you know, getting, you know, new drug classification status, but we actually do sell it for a uh, supplement in the, in the animal industry, as well as for topical use. Yeah. Wendell was showing some really gnarly pictures of, it was a horse who'd had a a really, oh, I could just see it. It was such (laughs) a horrible get gash. It was awful. And just, and then showed the progression of using that clay. It was on the horse's chest and like how quickly it healed. And it was amazing. And, you know, just, we were in this big discussion at the, at the God's good uh, food event about, you know, having that kind of clay with that kind of power just on hand at your home for burns or for any of those things that you talked about, that it would just be a, a really wonderful addition to somebody's medicine cabinet. So that's really neat. I, I think that's really very cool. So everybody go and check that out in addition to the salt. Well, before you leave today, Daryl, I have to ask you the anchor questions, the questions I ask all of my guests. And the first one is, what is your anchor meal, which is your go-to healthy meal that you eat quite often? I like making my own sauerkraut uh, and kimchi. And so one of my favorites is actually take a crock pot and to put my homemade sauerkraut, or it's more kimchi than sauerkraut, but it's a bunch of fermented veggies. And then I'll put a couple of steaks or pork chops in this crock pot with this sauerkraut and then just slow cook it for a couple of days. And it's one of my favorites. It's, it's vegetable based because of all the, the veggies I put in my fermented foods. So it's, I know it sounds boring or kind of weird, but it's one of my favorites. No, I think the simple, the simpler, the better is what we like around here. So that sounds good. Okay. How about an anchor verse, which is a favorite Bible verse or one that's resonating with you presently or your life verse or anything like that? Yeah. So one that has been a favorite for a long time is first Timothy 416. And I don't have it in front of me. So if I misquote it, you're going to have to hold me, tell me to it. But first Timothy 416 says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. 
And in doing so, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And I like that one because it feels like a very universal piece of advice to take heed unto yourself and to the doctrine. You don't have to worry about others. You know, take heed unto thyself and doctrine. Continue in those. And as you do that, you'll save yourself and them that hear thee. And so it, it puts more power uh, or more focus on my own life changes instead of worrying about everybody else, um, which is refreshing to me. And it's uh, just been a good reminder so that's that's the one I kind of keep going back to. Hmm, that's a nice one. Like like worry about yourself, take care of your own business, and then maybe others will observe observe that and see how well that you're you're heeding it. It doesn't always work, and I don't always do that, <laughs> but it's one that I aspire <laughs> to. <laughs> good deal, good deal. Well, um, where can people? I mean, I know. I get my salt at my Redmond salt at the grocery store, but, but I don't think we, everybody can find like the different kind of flavored ones or mixed ones. And so is the best place to do that, to go to the website and and find all of your products there? That's a great place to start. And the website is just real salt. Uh, dot com as opposed to fake salt, R-E-A-L, real salt. You know, back in the day when they're trying to come up with a name, they, my grandpa and um, uncle stood around, you know, what are we going to call this? You know, it's not, it's not fake salt. It's not processed salt. It's, it's just real salt. And the name kind of <laughs> stuck. But yeah, on that site, you can link to our other, our main Redmond page that has some of the cosmetics, the the toothpaste, the facials, some of the other seasonings and the other fun things that we're, we're doing with salt. Excellent. And could also people could follow you on uh, Real Salt on Instagram or Facebook or? Yep, both. Yep. We have a pretty active Facebook, Instagram profile. I, I don't think we have much on the TikTok side of things, but uh, yeah, Facebook, Instagram, or, you know, starting at, uh, at just realsalt.com is a, is a great place to start. Fantastic. So everybody, I I love Redmond's Real Salt. It's what I use. It is additive-free, unprocessed, full of trace minerals. It's just a great quality, great quality salt to use. And so, Daryl, thank you so much. What an enlightening discussion we've had today. It's been so interesting and really brought to life interesting things about, about salt and why it's not only good for us, but how it's been so highly valued. And so thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope your audience has enjoyed it uh, as much as, as I have. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening. I hope you have a healthy and blessed week and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.